0: A time ago, uh, a friend bought Kath and I some tickets to go and see a stage performance of Les Miserables at the Bristol Hippodrome. And I must admit, I wasn't particularly keen. I didn't get overexcited when we had been given these things. You see, firstly, it was a musical, and that's not a bloke thing. And uh, secondly, the title to me wasn't the most promising. You know, The Miserables. Uh, That sounds like an evening full of fun, doesn't it? Um, But actually, I went, and I was transfixed. The music was superb, and it was so emotionally engaging. And uh, as is my way, I ended up blubbing helplessly at a number of points as I was ambushed by the storyline. In fact, here's a confession. Since then, we've been to see it four times more on the stage and uh, have watched the film on numerous occasions, sorry. Um, And actually what gets me, you see, is about this adaption of Victor Hugo's story is that it's actually all about grace. It's how a criminal like Jean Valjean was turned around by a gracious act and became himself a vehicle of grace to others. And the great counterpoint in this drama is that this grace is contrasted with the law-keeping of Javert. Uh, Javert, as you hopefully can tell on the screen, is the one on the right. Uh, A rigid, law-enforcing officer of the state who pursues Jean Valjean across the years and actually can't handle the fact that Valjean Acts with mercy and nobility in then saving his life. Um, those of you who know Les Mis will be aware of Javert's final song. I'm not going to sing it to you, you'll be very grateful for that, but at least let me quote the lyrics. He, he says this, and in the film, uh, he, he's sort of pacing high ramparts, and he says, who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe out the past, and wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief, damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase, I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It's either Valjean or Javert. It's either law or grace. I am reaching, but I fall. And the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can go. There is no way to go. Now... Those of you who know the piece know he he then holds this last note. I can go on because with that Javert throws himself off the bridge along which he has, is walking into the river Saint to end his life. You see he just couldn't cope with the world of grace. It's beyond him. It threatens him. It seems to destroy all that he believed in. And so he ends All. And that's precisely what we find with Jonah. Instead of rejoicing that the Ninevites had repented at his preaching, he becomes inconsolable. He wants to die. This turn of events, you see, threatens everything he treasured. For Jonah didn't find his greatest joy in knowing the living God. Perversely, his whole sense of well-being was wrapped up with being an Israelite. It was wrapped up with Israel's national identity. And for Israel's greatest enemy, as were the Assyrians, the Ninevites, for them to be delivered from judgment was more than he could bear, not least because he'd been partly responsible for what had happened because of his preaching. Notice how he responds to the Lord's when he realizes that Nineveh wasn't going to be destroyed. There in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. You see, here's the reason that Jonah ran away from going to Nineveh. If you were with us two weeks ago, you'll have seen that's what happened. Here's the reason that Jonah, instead of going up to Nineveh, went down to Joppa to catch a ship to Tarshish, southern tip of Spain probably, as far as you could get away From Nineveh, here's the explanation that makes sense of the book. For he knew that if God was warning people of his judgment, then there was always the possibility that they might respond and repent and God be gracious to them. And as we'd actually seen two weeks ago, Jonah was the prophet who'd encouraged an evil king of Israel, Jehoshaphat II, to strengthen their national borders. Whereas other prophets at that time, uh, speaking into that context, were criticizing and condemning the king for his character, Jonah seemed more concerned about the country and, go on king, you build those borders. You can almost picture him wearing a a meager baseball hat, make Israel great again, and applauding all the efforts to keep foreigners out of Israel. You can sense his devastation at the fact that God had shown mercy to people who in Jonah's eyes were thoroughly undeserving. And he grew very angry. So this leads me to the first of my two points this evening. Just two points, though don't overly take too much comfort in that. Okay, number one, I need to have a better understanding of my heart. I need to have a better understanding of my heart. Look, I want to point out how I think this final chapter is structured as it will help us understand that Jonah's problem is actually more personal than theological. We need to remember that Jonah's message to the Ninevites declared this, second part of verse 4 in chapter 3. This is Jonah's message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that following their repentance, God did not bring judgment upon them. So, when we come to the beginning of chapter 4, there has clearly been a period of time, at least 40 days, in which it's become obvious to Jonah that God isn't going to destroy the city. You know, if he'd been saying, hey, 40 days God will destroy, you would expect that he's going to take 40 days before he says, God's not going to destroy it, you see? And, and it seems that's what's made Jonah so angry. That's what brought about this conversation that he, uh, we read about that he had with the Lord in those first four verses. But, and here is where I need you to put in some work. In verse 5, the NIV has correctly translated a Hebrew word in what is known as the pluperfect tense. Now, I don't really know what that means either, except... Uh, What it does mean is the correct translation here is Jonah had gone out. Do you see that? If you've got it open in front of you. So you've been reading what's been happening verses 1 to 4. And then verse 5 it says Jonah had gone out. It seems to be chronologically taking us back to an earlier point. So what this suggests is that after his preaching in the city... The story actually picks up here in verse 5. Chronologically, this is where it follows on naturally. And that verses 1 to 4 are an echo and a further conversation of what took place after the building of the booth and the growth of the plant and its destruction by the worm. And in fact, I want to suggest that the question of verse 4 is actually the same question that we find in verse 9. So, in in other words, verses 5 to 11 need to be overlaid on verses 1 to 4. Do you, do you see what I'm getting? I hope I haven't lost you at this point. It's just, so I'm saying verse 5, because of this particular tense, what we see is that's what happened, as it were, you, you read uh, from verse 5, you know, Jonah has preached, there's going to be destruction, he goes and he's he, he is waiting, he's sat there, and then, uh, the events of verses 1 to 4 happen during that period of time. They, they need to be overlaid on that particular point. And, and you see, there's a reason for this. Actually, it's, I believe it's part of the sheer genius of this amazing book. For it shows us that Jonah's real problem wasn't theological. It was personal. And actually, for many evangelicals, we have the same problem. We've developed a habit of dressing up our sins and prejudices in fine-sounding doctrinal phrases in an attempt to disguise our failures. We can do that. There's there's some stuff that's coming out at the moment. Some areas of the evangelical church which are not good. Understand that. And they had been dressed up in theological phrases to excuse poor and abusive behavior. You see, Jonah's complaint to God in verse 2 sounds very reasonable, very theological. Verse 2 of chapter 4, he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, actually, we'll see a little bit later that Jonah's being very selective, in his quotation here. It's from uh, Exodus 34. But basically, Jonah seems to be quoting God's word back at him, claiming that he was being inconsistent in having mercy upon undeserving people. Jonah is going, God, it isn't fair. God, they should be punished, not forgiven. And he was so angry about this that he wanted to die. By the way, let me say in passing that anger can be a great diagnostic tool. You see, anger actually reveals to me what matters most. When I get angry, it's at the time that what I cherish most is being threatened. When you get angry, it can diagnose, it reveals to you what is most important to you, what's being challenged most. For me, actually, it was sport. I was far, far too competitive, especially playing soccer. I had to win. And on the playing field, my confession is, I became a very different and very ugly and violent person. I had to win. And often it boiled over into anger. And it was probably in God's goodness that I had such a serious injury playing soccer that I had to give up that game. Well, praise God, he knew best what I needed because... That revealed where I was coming from. It showed me my heart, competitiveness. I had to win. It had to be me first. It still does break through a time when Kath and I are playing a game of Scrabble, but, you know, we, we keep working on those, those things. For others, it can be their politics. They'll lose it big time when someone suggests a different political party or leader or strategy and their passions boil over when it comes to questions of independence either from the union or from Europe for them that's the big thing that matters to them more than anything else and they will get angry when you get in discussion with them because how could you be so stupid and actually it's it's a diagnostic tool it reveals what is most important and for still others it might be the church and how things are done, what music is played, and what traditions are followed and the like. And in various settings, I've seen people lose their tempers. And it just points to the fact that they cherish the institution more than the Lord. But there's more to this anger than a theological problem. With our understanding of this passage, we see it was personal. Actually, it was all to do with Jonah's comfort. Let's go back to verses 5 to 9. Again, it will be on screen. Let me read it to you. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. So you get what's happened. Jonah has traveled through the city. He's done his preaching. He's come out on the eastern edge. And there he made himself a shelter from the sun's rays. And he waited to see what would happen. Eagerly hoping that God actually would destroy the city. After some time there, the Lord graciously provided a leafy plant which gave some additional shelter. By the way, we don't know what that plant was. It's the only time this particular plant name occurs in the Bible. Some guess it was the the picture of the thing you can see on screen, the castor oil plant. Well, whatever it was, it was a merciful act towards Jonah. And it made Jonah, as we're told in verse 6, very happy. But here's the rub, brilliantly exposed by the writer having mentioned Jonah's attitude back in verse 4. Jonah, this is sheer hypocrisy. Jonah's emotions are actually stirred not primarily by the preservation of the Ninevites, but by the destruction of this quick-growing plant that had given him shade. His theological reasoning is secondary. His primary concern is his own comfort. You see, what's more valuable people or plants? The Lord graciously preserved one, the Lord graciously provided the other. So the Lord delivers the knockout punch to Jonah in verses 10 to 11. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. You see, what, what Jonah was struggling with is this. The very nature of grace, of God's grace, is that it is not fair. Get that. God is not fair. Now, this is scandalous. The Bible teaches us that people do not receive what they deserve. And as we look around our society today, and we see so much that disturbs us in our society today, our instinctive reaction is to cry out for judgment rather than mercy. You see, we favor our comfort of living in a particular way over the eternal fate of those who upset us. Let me quote Tim Keller, whose work on Jonah has been so helpful. He writes this, When Christian believers care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, and we might add, and cultural preferences, they are sinning like Jonah. If they value the economic flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, they are sinning like Jonah. Brothers and sisters, I need to have a better understanding of my heart. You see, sin hides itself away in the recesses of my heart and I will try and justify my preferences and what I want and the comforts that I desire and I will say things and I will expect judgment to rain down in certain situations and actually it is not because I'm being holy it is because I am a sinner who's not exposing my heart to God's truth. So let's go on to the second point. I need to have a deeper grasp of God's character. I not only need to have a better understanding of my heart, secondly, I need to have a deeper grasp of God's character. And you see, these two points are inseparably connected. As I see the selfishness and sin that still lurk in the recesses of my heart, I desperately need the light of God's truth to expose my need and to point me again to Him. Or, to change the metaphor, I need to know God better as it reveals to me the direction of travel there should be in every thought and motive and action of my life. It's my GPS. It's my satnav destination. God, to be like Him, that's where I want to travel when I have to make decisions and responses and my motives it's who is he like that's where i'm gonna go not what do i want what are my comforts what is he like how can i be like him you see jonah's problem was that he didn't know himself well enough nor did he know the god he served well enough just an example of that listen to him Back in chapter 2, when he's singing that very self-centered psalm, in verses 8 to 9, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. Sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) But hang on, Jonah. You've condemned the idolatry of others without seeing the idolatry in your own heart. You're full of nationalistic pride, but you are empty of gracious compassion. In fact, when we look at Jonah's complaint to God at the beginning of chapter 4, we see his reading of Scripture was itself very selective. Do you see what he he says, second half of verse 2 of chapter 4? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Great! That's great, Jonah. You've quoted from Scripture. Well done. Hang on. This is a quote from Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. When Moses had asked the Lord to reveal his character to him. Now, I'm going to read that to you. Have a look what Jonah quoted and have a look what he left out. Okay, it'll be on screen, Exodus 34, 6-7. to 7. And he, that is God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the, here we go, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's what Jonah quoted. But it continues, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here we go. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See, Jonah was great at emphasizing God's mercy and saying, oh God, this is wrong. You're you're merciful and you're not exercising judgment. And yet, actually, it was right there in front of him. God does deal with sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God does deal with sin. God must deal with sin. But Jonah chose his scriptures to fit in with his prejudices. And could I say this? We must be very careful that we grasp the whole of scripture and that we see the Bible's big overarching picture, that we don't make God into some simplistic two dimensional being of our own invention, rather than the God who reveals himself through the Bible in his. Depth and glorious complexity. So let me close with three characteristics of God that come over in this book that we need to grasp for ourselves. Uh, and could I just say they happen to begin with the letter P, but it wasn't my intention to alliterate. I'm afraid these days it just happens. Um, number one, that th- we notice God's patience. God's patience. When you've read this story, aren't you going, God, why did you put up with Jonah? Isn't it amazing that God puts up with him? After all Jonah's rebellion and complaints and downright rudeness towards God, we discover he is dealt with in mercy and tenderness. He deserved judgment as much as the Ninevites, but God spared them both. And could I say, I'm so grateful for this. Because I'm so slow to learn the lessons that I ought. I'm so grateful that the Lord gives me time for my slow mind and stubborn heart to grasp a little of what he has done and who he is. And I realize that doesn't happen in one single experience but he leads me on a journey with many stopping off places where I can learn a little bit more. He is patient. Hasn't that been your experience, believer, here this evening? That God has been patient with you. You can look back and you see many times of failure and falling and mistake. And and, and you have to say, God, you've been so patient. I've offended you to your face by my willful sins, but you've been so patient with me. And maybe, in fact, as we've worked through this book of Jonah, you've seen some new things about your heart. Well, praise him for his mercy that keeps leading us on. The patience of God, God's patience. But secondly, I notice it speaks about God's providence. God's providence. You see, this is God's world. And we can expect that his fingerprints will be over every event in our lives. We see this with Jonah. On four occasions, we're told that the Lord provided something. It's a special word in the Hebrew. We find it in chapter 1, verse 17. We're told the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow him. Chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord provided, there's the word, a leafy plant that gave shade. Chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord provided, there's the word, a worm that chewed the plant. Chapter 4, verse 8, the Lord provided a scorching east wind that made Jonah so unwell. And let me say this, throughout our lives, the Lord will bring things into our experience that will be used to teach us lessons and make us more like Jesus. Sometimes they're things that we delight in. At other times, they can be deeply painful things. But the point is this. God is always at work in the lives of his children. A child may have died before you. A relationship may have ended messily. A sinful habit may have tripped you up. But through it all, God is at work. That wonderful verse in Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know, we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all. All things God is at work, whether it is in the provision of the plant or whether it is in the provision of the worm that chewed the plant, in all things God is working for our good and for his glory. And could I say this? You may be traveling through something at this time. I don't know. You here, as you're sat here, you may be going, Andy, I'm going through something that makes absolutely no sense to me at this moment. But could I say it does to him? He's in charge. He's gracious. And he's working all things for your good and his glory. God's providence. But let me finish with God's passion. God's passion. Because there's a Hebrew word used twice in the last couple of verses of this book, they're in verses 10 and 11. A word which isn't easy to translate. In the NIV, we find they use the English word concern or concerned. In the Hebrew, it literally means to have tears in one's eyes. To have tears in one's eyes. It's a far more emotional word than our translation captures. And yet, this is the word that God uses to describe his response to the cruel, violent, oppressive, idol-worshipping Ninevites. He has tears in his eyes for them. And when we come to the life of Jesus Christ, we discover this is exactly how he responded to suffering and sin. Do you remember he came to where Lazarus had had died and the folks around him, friends of his, were grieving? And we have that shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The Son of God wept. When Jesus was riding towards Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly life, we, we, we read that when he saw the city, when he saw Jerusalem, he stopped and he, he wept over it, literally had tears in his eyes because of what he knew was going to come to that city. And even when he was being nailed to the cross, he cried out to his heavenly Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. You see, this is the response that Jonah should have had over Nineveh. And my brothers and sisters, it's the response we should have to all lost sinners in our world today to weep over them, to feel their lostness, to mourn their emptiness, to grieve over their blindness. And whereas Jonah went outside the city walls of Nineveh hoping to witness their destruction, our Savior Jesus Christ went outside the city walls of Jerusalem to pay the price for our liberation, dying slowly, excruciatingly, vicariously for people like us. You see, it was there on that cross that the conundrum that we have seen in Jonah's head, it's there that it finds its answer at the cross. How could God be just and at the same time be the one who can forgive foul sinners like the Ninevites, like us, and receive them to himself? It's through the cross. And the more that love grips my heart then the more I can be useful in his kingdom, the more I can reflect his character, the more I can point to Jesus. John Newton. Some of you will have heard about John Newton. He was a slave trader who became a Christian, became a a minister. He wrote uh, Amazing Grace. That is what most of us know him for. But he also wrote a poem. It's sometimes used as a hymn. I'm not actually sure it should be used as a hymn, whether it is appropriate to to sing it. But he used a poem, which was the expression of his heart, as he wanted to be more like the sovereign God. Let me just read it to you. It will come up on screen. As well, these are Newton's words and maybe you're here as a Christian and you can relate to them. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, He seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? This is the way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Let's pray.